Thanks. Thank you for that flattering introduction. That's super nice. It's good to be with you guys this morning. Definitely honored to share the word with you. I don't know if anybody else can relate to this, but my wife and I, Lucy, don't know if we're the 9 a.m. crowd or the 10.30 a.m. crowd. So we kind of know half from 9 a.m. and we know half from 10.30. So for those of you we don't know, uh, it's great to see you guys and we hope to continue to grow with you and meet you and know you guys, and it's an honor to share the word with you. Uh, I was given an hour and a half to preach this morning, so I hope you're ready. Um, Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. No, don't don't be afraid. Um, We're in between series right now, finishing up 2 Timothy, and then heading back to 1 Kings. So we just want to stop for a moment. And as we're getting in rhythms of prayer, personally, but also even at CBC with our prayer meetings, it might be good for us to take a moment and just think about what our Lord instructs us in praying. So Matthew chapter 6, we're going to be reading from verses 5 to 15. Verse 5, and when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret And your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you even ask him. Pray then like this, our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Let's pray together. Uh, Father, we want to thank you for your word. Uh, There are thousands, if not millions, of believers gathering all around the world around your word, and even for some not having a full copy of your text of scripture, Um, And Father, we have been given a tremendous blessing, but the truth is, is that without the power of your Holy Spirit, we, we won't be able to receive your word, and so we come to you asking that you would help us. Uh, We pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Um, We want to hear our master speaking to us. We want to hear 
our master telling the promises of the gospel that we have in him. And I pray that we would not just hear, but our hearts would see and hear what you have for us this morning. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Now, I was told if I was going to preach that a C.S. Lewis quote was required. So I'm going to start off strong. Probably one of the most famous works from C.S. Lewis is the Screwtape Letters. And in the Screwtape Letters, you have, I guess, what you could call a upper management bureaucrat demon uh, named uh, Screwtape, who is trying to train his protege, Wormwood, in the ways of demonology, I guess, how to actually trip up Christians in their Christian walk. And early on in the book, Screwtape is mentoring uh, his protege, Wormwood, and he wants, I think it's in chapter four, wants to mentor him on, quote, the painful subject of prayer. He's pretty aware of how pivotal prayer is in the Christian life. And Screwtape makes a goal very clear that, quote, the goal is to keep the patient, that is the Christian, from the serious intention of praying altogether. And so Screwtape is giving Wormwood these different ways to distract Christian, get him focused on his feelings why he's praying, get him focused on how one method is better than the other method while he's praying, get him focused on some false image of God while he's praying so that you would actually keep him from that sacred task for every Christian, that is prayer, to keep him from it altogether. I think it's an illuminating portion of the book, especially because it's so early in the book, because it shows how important prayer is and also how many distractions there are for prayer. I mean, I I think all of us can say that we're familiar with those distractions, busyness, tiredness, Netflix. I mean, there's tons and tons of ways to be distracted from the blessing that we have in prayer. And I think the value of what this text brings to us this morning is that it actually, from the words of our Lord, identifies some of the distractions, some of the hiccups that keep us from actually praying to the Lord. And not just leaving us there, but giving us good solutions on how to seek the Lord in prayer. So, I want to just highlight this morning, if we can, um, three distractions that the Lord warns us about and guides us in how to respond to. Let's look at the first distraction. Look down in your Bibles with me at verse 5. The Lord starts with saying, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. Now, no doubt when you hear the word hypocrite, there's probably some kind of image that comes into your mind. I mean, we use that word a lot, so, you know, I don't know if anybody else can relate to this, but the image I get in my mind is somebody who, you know, is very Christianly. They have Instagram reels with Bible verses and so on and so forth. And, but then they go to Starbucks on Saturday morning and they yell at the 15-year-old girl behind the counter. And you're like, oh, okay, that's a hypocrite. You know, you get these images of your mind of what a hypocrite is. It's someone who says they're, they're going to do one thing, but then they, they do the other. But... In Jesus' mind, the problem with being a hypocrite is it actually goes deeper than just inconsistency. 
there's actually a problem of the heart that is at work in being a hypocrite. In fact, in Jesus' time, if you were to use the word hypocrite, uh, the word hypocrite just simply meant being an actor. So if you were to go to the theater, which if you were a Jew, you wouldn't have been doing that, so it's probably even more of kind of a scandalous analogy, but if you were to go to the theater and somebody was going to come on stage and play a certain part, that person was a hypocrite. They were the actor of that play. So being a hypocrite is not just being inconsistent. Being a hypocrite is this act of, of putting on a show um, that what you're doing is not really truly who you are. It's who you want people to think that you are. The hypocrites are the ones putting on an act. And the act they're specifically putting on, you can see in verse 1. Look in your Bibles at verse 1 in the same chapter. He says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. So these people that, that Jesus are talking about, these hypocrites, they're these people who are putting on an act. They want to be seen as righteous people, but it is not a sincere thing. It's merely what they want people to see them as. And it shows up in a specific way. Let's keep reading. So they want to be seen as righteous, and here's how they want to be seen as righteous. Look in your Bibles at the next clause here. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners. Now, the question that first comes to my mind is, is really simply, what's wrong with this? I mean, prayer is a very good thing. I, of course, would want them to be praying. And it's kind of hard to figure out what's, what's wrong with the picture. I mean, surely it's not the, the posture that they were standing. I mean, people in the Bible, they stand while they pray. They sit while they pray. They kneel. They look up. They look down. I mean, there's all kinds of ways of praying in the Bible. So the fact that he's standing isn't what the issue is. And it's definitely not the issue that he's praying in the synagogue. I mean, if you're going to pray anywhere, you should probably pray in the synagogue. Maybe a more interesting note here is that he says that they pray in the synagogues and at the street corners. So you kind of get the image that, um, you know, in the street corner you're doing business and there's kind of these normal everyday life kind of things going on. And then somebody prays, and I mean, surely somebody could pray there and it'd be fine, but there would be an unlikely audience there to see such a person praying. In fact, if you think about some of the Jewish traditions of that time, it was normal for Jews of that time to have certain parts of the day where they prayed or recited the great Shema. So maybe you could think about a Jew the day before, he's planning his, what his next day is going to look like. He's like, oh, well, I'll, I'll get up in the morning and then I'll pray and then I'll, I'll head here and then I'll head there. Well, but then, then at this time I have to be praying, but I'll be in the market, but uh, well, maybe that's not such a bad thing. I'll be in the market, a couple people will see me, and uh, that might just be okay. It might actually be convenient to show other people that I'm praying. I don't know if anybody can relate to this example, um, but um, I don't know how many of you grew up going to church camp. I was a pastor's kid, so I went to church camps way too many times, uh, pretty much. But um, it always struck me that without fail, Whatever denomination you went to, it didn't matter what church camp it was, 
100% of the time, without fail, there was always going to be some dude with an acoustic guitar somewhere. And he was going to be waiting for the lucky lady to serenade all the way up to the altar. And it didn't matter where you were. I mean, it could be movie night, and it could be like, Brad, put your guitar away. We're watching The Passion of Christ. Like, why are you, like, playing your guitar right now? You know, it's, it's kind of this principle of that when the activity doesn't match the setting, you kind of have to ask, okay, why are you doing that? And part of what usually happens is what's going on is even though the activity doesn't match the setting, the setting in that person's mind is validation from men attention from others. And that's actually exactly what the Lord is saying is going on in this passage. Look at the next clause where he says, that they may be seen by others. So these hypocrites, these actors, they want to be seen as righteous. And they're in the synagogue praying, and they're in the streets praying, and they're standing, or they could be, they could be sitting, they could be anywhere. But the problem is, when you get down to it, is that They are praying in order that they may be seen by others. Interestingly enough, compared to verse 2 in this same chapter, in verse 2 you have people who are giving to the needy. And in that case, the Lord says, they're doing it so that they may receive the praise of other people. This is the first distraction that we have in our prayer lives is this temptation to receive praise from others. In this case, prayer is supposed to be having an audience with God and Him getting glory from that. But in the case of these hypocrites, their audience is with man and the one getting the glory is them. The temptation is to use prayer not as an occasion to speak to God, but to garner attention and praise from other men. And this is not a temptation to be taken lightly. The praise of men is a powerful, motivating force. The praise of men will cause people to do things that they did not know they were capable of doing before. About in the mid-2010s, um, there was a female tech entrepreneur by the name of Elizabeth Holmes. And Elizabeth Holmes was to be known as the great uh, big next, like, Steve Jobs. And in fact, it was pretty much her stated, jo- her stated goal that she wanted to be the next Steve Jobs. And so she created this company. Uh, It was a biomedical company, and they basically created this product that from one prick of the finger, from just a little thing of blood, you could run thousands of tests. I mean, it was supposed to be this thing where you never had to draw blood again. So it was an amazing biomedical device. And so just like Steve Jobs was going to be this person who uh, received much attention and praise from men and changed the tech industry, she was also going to make her stamp. So she started this company. She even started dressing like Steve Jobs, lowered her voice like Steve Jobs, led the company like Steve Jobs. And by the time it hit 2015, Forbes magazine had valued their company at about $9 billion. The problem being, though, that in 2018, it all fell apart. It was a scam. There was no biomedical product that did that. 
and this lady was not the next Steve Jobs. She she ripped off thousands of investors, ruined her employees' lives, and falsified people's medical information. All of that damage done at the cost that she would be in the magazines to be seen as the great next Steve Jobs. The praise of man is a powerful motivating force and it will take out whatever it needs to in the way in order to reach that goal. And that temptation is not beyond Christians in our circles. There are temptations to want to value the praise of man even in our prayer lives. It's, for example, completely normal in our Christian circles uh, in a time of social media to replace communion with God with a public display of our own piety on things like Instagram or Facebook. Things that were intended for God and his ears have become a public display of our own piety oftentimes. You can even see this temptation for the praise of man in our prayer life and the assumptions that we make about other believers. Sometimes there might be a a younger believer that comes along and um, even with maybe some good intentions, we want to build them up in the faith, but maybe we assume wrongly that without even asking, they're not praying, and then we bulldoze over and share about our prayer life, and at the end of it, they're discouraged and we're puffed up a little bit. It is a desirable temptation, and in the moment, we're praised up with the puff of man But our Lord is saying we're actually distracted from the true reward of prayer. Yes, the praise of man is a a reward. I mean, the Lord himself says, truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But this is settling for less. It is settling for less to seek the reward of man instead of the reward of our heavenly father. So what are we to do? Look down here in verse 6 with me. Jesus says, but when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Now the situation here has changed drastically. We're not in the synagogue anymore. We're not in the streets We've gone into this little room, this quiet place, which by the way, in that time, there's not really a lot of rooms and houses, so you might be in this little grain closet or something, or you might be like up on the little, the little rooftop area, so somewhere private where people aren't going to see you, but there's nothing really magical or mystical about the secret place or the prayer closet. The part that's significant that has changed is the audience. The person praying goes into a a secret place so that his or her only audience is God. One commentator says the secret place will exclude other people, but not God. Essentially, Jesus has changed the setting here on, on these hypocrites so that the person's only audience is God, and that's how Jesus comes to test the motives. In a sense, what Jesus is asking is, will you pray to the Father when there are not people 
to see. And in our own lives, this is a good check-in for, for us to ask ourselves. In our prayer life, is the only place we're praying in public? Because to be very clear, the Lord and his apostles encouraged public prayer. If they didn't, we wouldn't have a Sunday night prayer service. That would be kind of an issue if, if we were doing that. We'd think we know better than the Lord, but the Lord has actually prescribed such things. And also you actually notice that when you recite the Lord's Prayer, it's cited in the plural. It's our Father together. We are praying together as a community of people. But yet, even in the Christian life, there are still these paradoxes of temptations that come into our lives. And so as this litmus test, the Lord is offering us, in a sense, this question, do you only pray when people are there to see? Or do we commit ourselves to pray to the Lord, him and I, him and you alone? Because the benefit of that is not that you are just receiving the reward of men, we're excluding that, but that you are receiving the reward of God Yes, the, the praise of men feels great, but what about when you pray to the Almighty Father and he sees and recognizes your prayer? Yes, you can bring your troubles before men and through temporary relief can feel like a more righteous person. However, there is nothing that compares to bringing your burdens to God, your, your fear, your pain, your anxieties, and even down to the burdens of sin and death and knowing that he cannot just offer empty phrases, oh, how righteous, but the Lord can actually answer those prayers. What men cannot do is actually answer your prayer. Men cannot answer our prayer. They can answer the desires of our flesh, but that is too little of a thing to ask. The thing that the Lord actually answers is your prayer. And the Lord would have us not to be distracted from that reward. Our Heavenly Father wants us to not settle for less, but to actually have the reward that comes from praying with the Lord. I have to keep moving here. Second, there is another distraction that comes up in our prayer life. Look down in verse 7 with me. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. For they think that they will be heard for their many words. Now here's, here's another warning. So in the previous warning he was saying, do not be like the hypocrites. But in this next one he's asking us, do not be like the Gentiles. And he says, it's because the Gentiles are heaping up empty phrases. And it also depends what translation you're reading. How many people in the room have ESV? ESV? How about NIV? Anybody have NIV? Okay, got a couple NIV. Okay, great. So it kind of depends how you're translating this. It's like heaping up empty phrases. Or it could mean something like keep babbling on if you're reading the NIV uh, essentially what it's trying to get across is it's this impressive length of speech. And you could see that pagans would do this at times. Um, 
you even see it in very long prayers where they try to name as many names of the gods as they can. So, and they had a lot of gods. So it went extremely long. Um, when Paul's preaching at the Areopagus, there's these altars to unknown gods. They don't want to forget them. So they have these long prayers to all these other gods. And sure, it's long and it's impressive. And just to clarify, the Lord is not against long prayers as it stands. In fact, the Lord himself actually had prayed through the night very many times. We're instructed to be habitually always in prayer. So it's not even, again, the length of prayer that is the issue. What the issue is, is the assumption that stands behind the prayer. So for the hypocrites, what was behind the prayer was this false desire. For these Gentiles, what's behind the prayer is this false assumption. And the false assumption is this. For they think that they will be heard for their many words. They think that somehow the the impressive nature of their many words, whether it be eloquent or not, would be enough to manipulate the deity into thinking that he should listen to them. They're in this mindset where when they're praying that they need to convince God to listen to them. What does the Lord make of this assumption? He says this, Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. So the answer, according to Jesus, is not in something that we know, Because what we think, or what these Gentiles think in this situation, is that they need to convince God to listen to them. For Jesus, the answer is that not what we know, but what God knows. Namely, that God knows what we need before we ask him. What I'm trying to say is this. God, we do not, let me start that again. God does not need to be convinced to listen to us. We are the ones who need to be convinced that God is already listening to us. The second distraction that we will find in our prayer lives is this distraction that somehow we need to earn God's favor. But that is a completely opposite picture of what the New Testament paints. The picture that the New New Testament paints is this. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? And again, truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, He will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then draw near to the throne of grace that we might find help in time of need. God does not need to be convinced to listen. We need to be convinced that he is already listening. 
that we do not need to earn the favor of God, but that God the Father is ready and waiting to answer our prayer as it now stands. And brethren, in our lives, sorry, I said brethren, um, I'm from Backwoods, Maryland, that's completely normal. My wife told me not to say that, it just came out. It is sincere, I promise. Um, this, this distraction does come into our lives. It's not just some ethereal, existential problem that we come in. We bring this assumption into prayer oftentimes that in some way I need to get God to listen to me. We feel this way when uh, we compare our prayer lives to others. We think, oh, well, Susie Q over there prays about an hour every morning and here I am with, with my miserly amount, and Lord, I'm just so sorry, and we're, and we're groveling instead of saying, Lord, thank you for hearing me. Thank you for hearing Susie Q over there, and thank you for hearing me. Hallowed be your name. Let your kingdom come. Let your will be done. I know I don't need to convince you to listen to me. We feel that way when we compare. We also feel that way when we've sinned. When we, when we know that we've, we've yelled, we've lusted, we've gossiped, whatever it is that we're struggling with, and surely we have to give some time before we actually come before God so that he knows I'm, I'm sorry enough. Brethren, nothing is enough except the blood of Jesus Christ on behalf of your sins. And on that basis alone, the Father is ready to listen. And so he says, pray then like this. You don't have to pray to impress, and you don't have to pray with the assumption that you need to get me to listen. Begin your prayer like this, our Father who art in heaven. And what I find so amazing about this is that, you know, the, the Lord's Prayer is a model prayer. Um, if you if you go to Luke 11, the disciples just ask, Jesus, tell us how to pray. And, and he tells them, pray like this. So, you know, it's just a good model pl- prayer that you can walk through. But what I, what I love about this passage is that there's so much color in the context, namely that Jesus has been telling us that you, your audience is God. You, you don't need to convince him to listen to you. It doesn't need to be fantastic. You just need to come believing that your Father hears you and knows what you need. He says the Father knows what you need, so pray like this. So the Lord's Prayer isn't just a prayer, it's a confession of sorts. It's a confession of saying, God, you know what I need. More than I, I thought I needed the praise of men. I thought I needed to come before you and get you to try to listen to me. But you actually know what I need. And for lack of time, we can't spend as much time as we'd want to um, in the Lord's Prayer. But let me just go line by line here briefly. Let's just think about what he's saying about what we need. He starts the prayer with, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. It's not addressed to man, and it's addressed in confidence to our Father altogether. 
And it says to be, that your name be hallowed. Another way to say this is let your name be treated as holy. And not just your name, but everything that you are. That when I think of the Lord, may it be that the Lord is being treated as the holy God he is in my life and in all places of the earth. May that be. He prays also, second, there's six petitions here. The first was, hallowed be your name. The second is this, your kingdom come. Your kingdom come is a bit of a double-edged sword that you pray. I don't know if you're familiar with the language of uh, already, not yet. That's kind of how the kingdom works. The kingdom is already here, but yet at the same time, it is also is not yet. The kingdom is here in the sense that we see the Spirit of God working to bring people out of the kingdom of darkness into the family of God that is the church. And so the kingdom is here and is expanding. But yet at the same time, the kingdom is not here. Revelation 21 and 22 hasn't happened yet. God has not brought the earth into the original purpose that it was meant to be. And so, when you're praying your kingdom come, you're praying, Lord, now in this time, expand your kingdom. Take people out of darkness. Bring them into light. And you're also praying, Lord, hasten your coming. Bring everything into how it should be. Which goes with the third petition, your will be done. He says here, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So just as the angels and the servants that are there with you are serving you in complete obedience, may it be said of us also that your will is being done among us. And what you'll notice about these first three petitions here is that they're completely addressed to God and his name and his things. It's your kingdom, your will. And then the next three petitions are about our bread and our sins and us being led out of temptation. It has a specifically Godward focus in how it begins because God knows what we need. When he is honored as holy, when his kingdom expands, when his will is done, there is found human flourishing. There God provides for our daily bread. There God provides for our forgiveness. And there God takes us out of temptation and leads us into obedience through our trials. We are distracted from prayer when we think that we need to earn God's favor somehow or, or inform him, but the solution here is that God as your father is ready and waiting to listen and give you what you truly need. And lastly, let's us look at verse 14 here. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Now, if your Protestant antennas are going off right now, you're thinking, whoa, 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 whoa. Is this saying that God will forgive me as long as I forgive other people? Because that kind of sounds like 
works righteousness. And that's definitely not what I read in the scriptures. The Apostle Paul told me that a person is justified, they are made right with God apart from works of the law, by faith in Jesus Christ. So what is all this talk of, I must forgive in order to be forgiven? Is that what's being said here? There is an interesting story in um, the Gospels in Luke 7 where there's a woman of the town who knows that Jesus is reclining at a Pharisee's house. And the text tells us, it's in Luke 7, that this woman was a great sinner and we didn't know what she did. But she comes in with her, this jar of, this alabaster jar of, of perfume and ointment and she runs into this place of all these distinguished Pharisees and such, and she runs before Jesus, and she busts the expensive alabaster jar and is washing Jesus' feet with it and wiping his feet clean with her hair. And while this is happening, it's a great scandal, and Jesus knows it's a great scandal because everybody's like, what is she doing right now? It's so weird. And, well, they didn't say it like that, but um, Jesus then tells them a uh, tells Simon specifically a parable. He says, Simon, someone had a debt of 500 denarii and another 50. Both were forgiven their debt. Who do you think was more thankful? Who do you think loved more? And Simon, Peter, thankfully he got it right. He said, well, it was a person with the greater debt. It was a person who owed 500 of course, they were the ones who were, who were more thankful and appreciative and loving. And out of that story, Jesus says, this woman loves much. She's been forgiven much. And that's why she loves so much. The implication of God's forgiveness in our lives is that forgiveness would be given to other people. And when we withhold forgiveness from other people, closing our hearts off to giving to what God has done, we are not able to truly receive what God has given us in Christ, forgiveness of sins. There is a fruit that comes from being forgiven, and that is forgiving others. And the Lord would not have us be distracted and limit ourselves from experiencing the forgiveness of God by withholding forgiveness from others. The things that distract us are the praise of man, trying to earn God's favor, withholding forgiveness from other people. But our Lord's remedy is to remember that our recognition comes from God and his free unearned fatherly love and his forgiveness is ours. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you, Lord, that you hear us. We know that it was at a great cost that you hear us. You sent your only son to die in our place 
in order that we with him might be called sons and daughters. Lord, I pray that you would help us to see the beauty of what you're offering us and that we would be able to pray as you have taught us to do. In Jesus' name, amen.